Good morning. Good to be in the house of the Lord together today. So you should have a, a handout, two-sided handout. On one side will be um, a summary of some of the things I will be sharing with you today on the use of the Old Testament in the New. This is an introduction to that large subject. And then on the flip side will be uh, a copy of... Uh, a couple pages out of Robert Bratcher's book on the quotations of the New Testament that will apply to a specific passage that I will be reading a little later. So you'll, uh, to whatever extent that may be a benefit to you, you probably want to be on the main page there with the intro, introductory notes. Okay, so as we take about uh, general intro info, <laughs> general introduction. So this is an introduction to the use of the Old Testament new, and now this is an introduction to that introduction. Uh, so the nature of, the, of that subject is quite complex, as I think you may imagine if you studied Scripture very long. And this is illustrated by the lack of total agreement on what comprises an Old Testament quotation, or what comprises an Old Testament allusion. And uh, so the number of quotations, therefore, they are very numerous. You have a very a variety of estimates of how many they are. And part of that goes back to what is the definition. You know, if you don't agree on the precise definition, you'll have little differences in the in the details there. So, so it may depend upon uh, your definition, like of a quotation, according to G.K. Bill, Greg Bill. Uh, a good starting point is it, uh, is it a direct citation of an Old Testament passage that is easily recognizable by its clear and unique verbal parallelism. Many of these quotations are introduced by uh, a formula, such as to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Matthew 2.15. It is written, Romans 3.4, or other similar expression. You might have noted that today when Jesus read that in the synagogue. There at the end of that quotation from Isaiah 61, he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So there's that, today is fulfilled. So we have a, a little bit of a variety of those types of indications. So you think that would simplify matters uh, a bit, and it does help. Yet notice one thing here, that, uh, that the reading that uh, Dr. Hill would share with us today, read out of uh, Luke 4, you know, we read it, he read it back to back, which is, we can compare that a little bit. But did you, did you notice that he stopped before a significant thing? He stopped, he, he did not read that phrase, the, the day of vengeance of our God. Okay, and so we know that at the first coming, it was not for vengeance. You know, he came for redemption purposes as the Lamb of God. But then, then in another day, we believe by faith, we know confidently by the book of Revelation and many other passages that he will return in the second coming. You know, he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He'll come on the white horse. And there will be the day of vengeance of our God. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 61, you get over to chapter 63, and there he is trampling out his vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Oh, that's a Yankee song. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's a scripture there, Isaiah 63. And that spattering of what was supposed to be the grapes upon his garments was the blood of his enemies. All right, so not only in Isaiah, but in the New Testament, we have both of those scenes, but we know that there is... Uh, something that happened at his first coming and another thing remains fulfilled at his second coming. And we'll talk a little bit more about this idea of the prophetic uh, word where two 
different time periods are brought together in the same passage. We'll mention that again in a moment. And so what we're talking about to the larger picture is this idea of fulfillment formulas that give us a hint to how many quotations or allusions there may be. But if you study the Gospel of Matthew and other passages, you'll find that the introductory formulas may not be a direct fulfillment, but may be merely an allusion or a type. Famous passage there is Matthew 2.15. You know, in our, we've probably looked at that recently if we've read through our uh, either Luke or uh, Matthew in the um, uh, Christmas season. You remember that Matthew 2.15 when uh, we have the transfer of uh, the Holy Family, we call it. Anyway, uh, Jesus, his family, to Egypt. You have, out of Egypt, I've called my son. That's Hosea 11.1. 1. Now, there's you know, kind of differences in context. And so, even though it uses an introductory formula, most people would agree that that is not a direct prophecy, but that is a type or a shadow or a pattern there. So, you'd think that that says it fulfills it wouldn't make it a primary uh, prophecy, but not necessarily the case. Maybe uh, merely an illusion, a type, or an analogous pattern. Types and shadows there. An analogy or a type. Okay? Um, other citations without such introdu introductory indicators are so obviously parallel to an Old Testament text that we know is a quotation. Galatians 3 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's just so obvious, you know, from Genesis 15. So there are sometimes very obvious quotations even without that. Ephesians 6.3, you know, the commandment with the promise. That's quite evidently a quotation back to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments. Uh, most commentators agree on the vast majority of what should be recognized as quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, Gleason Archer, who co-edited co a, a massive book on the head, gets back with Greek text, Hebrew text, Greek text in the Old Testament, Greek text in the Septuagint, Greek text in the New Testament, side by side. Many years back, before there was all the digital things, but still was a significant accomplishment, said 312 direct citations or quotations okay, that he deals with. And he only deals with the quotations directly. Others just say slightly more or less. So approximately a ballpark figure for direct quotations might be about 300 to 350 formal quotations or citations of the Old Testament and the New. Although there's no precise agreement. Now how about allusions? Now I'm not talking about an illusion, you know, magic tricks, illusionist, or no. We don't want to do that. That's the opposite of what we're talking about. Allusion. We're talking about a reference. It may be simply defined, as noted here in the handout, as a brief expression consciously intended by an author to be dependent upon an Old Testament passage. In contrast to a quotation of the Old Testament, which is a direct reference, allusions or indirect references. The Old Testament wording is not reproduced directly as in a quotation. Some suggest that an allusion must con consist of a unique combination of at least three words. But not everyone agrees. The telltale key, according to uh, Beale and others, is uh, this, in discerning an allusion is that a unique parallel in wording, syntax, concept, or cluster of motifs is in the same order or structure. Nevertheless, because there's not a total agreement on the definition, estimates of the number of allusions in the Old Testament vary from about 600 allusions up to 1,650, and even up to 4,100. So there's a widespread of estimates on that. In the book of Revelation, for example, there are no formal quotations. 
I did find one person that tried to say that one, but almost, I was surprised to find that. And that one pretty much agrees there's no formal, so you know, in other words, we say there's no impact of the Old Testament on the book of Revelation. No, that's a, that's a fallacy. It has more allusions to the Old Testament than any other book. It just does not direct, quote the whole thing. It has little innuendos and allusions, and what we call echoes in just a moment. And so, the book of Revelation is saturated with influence. It, the tally of illusions goes anywhere from 394 to 635. Um, in, in the UBS 3rd edition, 394. In the Nestle Online 26th edition, 635, even up to 1,000. Okay, so, and that is by far more than any other book in the New Testament. So I find that quite interesting and ironic. Okay, so... Uh, for one, one example is Revelation 3.7. In Revelation 3.7, you know, one of the letters to the seven churches of Asia, Asia Minor, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And so Isaiah 22 is an excellent example of that. 22.22. Over there, it will mention the house of David. I'll set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. So you can see there's a significant parallel, but it's not an exact and complete verse quotation there. That's a, a one uh, excellent example of that. Right, another New Testament example is from the Gospels that uh, we read today from um, Luke chapter 4. Now, so not only in Luke chapter 4 do we have that significant quotation from Isaiah, but we also have, if, you know, as he kept on going there and, and gave them that proverb about, um, you've heard this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And he says, our prophet is not welcome without honor his own home country or hometown. But then in verses 25 to 26, I tell you, there were many widows in the days of Elijah. So he talks about an Old Testament reference to a story. That's an allusion. It's not a quote, but a reference to that story. You know, we find that in 1 Kings 17, 1 Kings 18, the story about where there was uh, a drought because the Lord, uh, you know, caused the drought. And then the Lord would eventually cause the rain. But in the days of Elijah, you remember, he visited the widow of Zarephath. And that's referenced in our text here. And being healed, uh, she provided for him and she healed his... Uh, her son. And so that's one reference in verses 25 and 26. But he said he was sent only to one widow in Zarephath. And then in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel. But uh, he says that none of them were cleansed except only one, Naaman the Syrian. That's Second Kings chapter 5. So there's an allusion to Elijah. There's an allusion to Elisha. And the work the Lord was doing through the prophets. And so, you know, back in verse 24, a prophet is not welcome in his own country. And so Jesus talks about the prophets here. He's allusions here. All right. Uh, some other examples here. In the Gospel of Matthew, allusions or even echoes that are more indirect allusions, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment. The allusions to the Old Testament may be introduced by a direct formula as illustrated in Matthew 2.23. And over Matthew 2.23... He says, uh, this is a situation when after they had gone to Egypt and the Lord directed them that after the death of Archelaus uh, that they could come back and they came to uh, 
Israel again, and they settled in Galilee, and they settled in Nazareth. Remember that? And so, uh, that was so that it would be fulfilled, he should be called a Nazarene. Now, I don't have time to go into much on that, but that's an interesting thing there, because there's no known quote there in the Old Testament. So, there's lots of speculation about this. You know, there's uh, a couple different Hebrew words, Nazir, which is like a Nazarite, the Nazarite vow, that Samson had in Samuel and some of the others. Uh, there's also... Uh, another word, um, well, that was, that's um, another word, not seer, which has to do with a branch or, or a, like a, the stem of a, of a uh, tree. And that could be uh, another passage, like maybe in, in Isaiah, where he talks about the picture of a, uh, you know, a bud or blossom on a, on a stem there. So we just don't know that exactly, but that's interesting that we have that. Um, Fulfillment. So once again, it doesn't simplify things there, but it's just, it's an illusion of some sort. But it's a, a nebulous one. All right. So, um, and then how about Matthew twenty six fifty six? So we're talking about associated with Jesus' birth, and also coming closer to his crucifixion, which is close to the time that we're talking about in our calendar today. Matthew twenty six uh, fifty six. In a larger context, is when you know. Um, Judas was betraying him and um, he said come you know do what you need to do and uh, and so Peter didn't tell us that but Peter tells us elsewhere Peter drew out, drew out the sword and struck the slave the high priest and so forth and Jesus says put up the sword he says um, don't you know I can call down 12 legions of angels here so we're not threatened verse 54 how then will this scriptures be fulfilled which say that this must happen he goes on to say, uh, you've come out to me with swords and clubs to me uh, as well against a robber. And he says, but all this is to take place in the scriptures of the prophets. And so we don't have any exact quotation there. Now there's a couple places in one Zechariah and another place where you can kind of piece together a couple things as an illusion. So you have a little bit more of a clue there, but in Matthew 2.23, you know, you just really don't have much. And here, not very much either. So, but you see here the examples of where Perhaps that the New Testament writers' minds were so saturated with Scripture that they just automatically would make a reference. You know, uh, some people are into sports. Some people are into other things, you know. But in sports, you know, if you're into that lingo, you can make a reference to something that everybody knows. It's back to when somebody made this famous shot that did whatever, you know, about basketball or football or whatever. And so that's a poor example, but it's an illustration that when you know the lingo, you know the context, you don't have to amplify it. But we don't have that background. We don't have that necessarily. That's why we need to study more in the text of Scripture and historical background. All right. So uh, let's, uh, let's read a text, Matthew 21. I'm going to read to a section out of Matthew 21. 1 through 16, and then we'll skip down because it's a long chapter. We'll get down to the end as well. But if you have Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the mouth of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there, and a colt with him, untie them, and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And he took uh, then 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Notice that fulfillment formula. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now let me pause for just a second. I don't want to be rude to the reading of Scripture, but on the back page of the handout, there will be that some of these references that we'll find. So can you look for these references as we go through this? So there's one. We've got a clue, though, because of the fulfillment formula, right? All right, verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, brought the donkey and the coat, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. And most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting the branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! I mean, save now. Hosanna to the Son of David! That's a messianic reference. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's a reference to Psalm 118. Verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds are saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Verse 13. And he said to them, It is written. It's another key phrase there. It is written. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den or den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? It's another clue. He's quoting the Old Testament. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nurses, nursing babies? You will have, you have prepared praise for yourself. He left them, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Okay, so look, skip down to verse 42. Now the interim passage that we're skipping here is he, is Jesus will, in the next day, will be interacting further with the people and he, has, he will share with them a couple of parables. And we won't share with the details of the first parable there, but then he interacts with them. And he has a second parable in verse 33 about the landowner who planted a vineyard. And he's quoting Isaiah 5 about the parable about Israel. But now he's, he's uh, making reference to that and applying it in his time about the harvest approach and how that they mistreated him. And, you know, people understood in that day about owning a vineyard and raising agricultural and they understood this perfectly. You know, has this ever happened to you? Uh, yeah, one time that happened for me. And so he, they identified with that about digging a wine press, all the hard work it took to dig out in that rocky soil and the, the terrain there where the rain came down and there's erosion and all the time to build up all that. They, shared all, they understood all that. When the harvest time came, he sent, he sent uh, his slaves to the vine growers to receive the produce. They took his slaves and beat him and stoned him, stoned him, sent another group and on and on and on. And finally said, I know what, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. So I send his son and um, they took him. They said, he's the heir. So we're going to kill him and threw him out. And then they said, what will he do to the vine growers? Um, I think they're being a little kind of what he said there, but they said that he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, which is true. Oh, he'll kill them. 
and will rent out their vineyard. Okay, that leads us up to verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the Scriptures? What is he saying? Have you not read the Old Testament? He said, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and this is marvelous in our eyes. Another quote from Psalm 118. Two different quotes from Psalm 118. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he's speaking about them. They sought to seize him. They feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Okay, so there's an example of a several quotations in one passage, in one teaching of the Lord Jesus. And we, we all know that that occurred on what we traditionally call, which in our calendar comes next Sunday, right? What do we call that? Palm Sunday. Okay, so we're at that time of year here as well. Now, the quotation that we saw first, and back in verses 4 to 5, and hopefully you flipped over, and if you wanted to look at the, the, the various places there that we kind of rehearsed those citations, quotations of the Old Testament, the very first one is found in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet. Actually, the primary one is Zechariah 9, 9, and 10, but it's also a side reference to Isaiah 62, 11. So that's why you'll see there on the branch or come to you, Isaiah 62, 11, where basically it just says, the here, O daughter of Zion. That's really not much of a quote there. But then the next part is from Zechariah 9 9. Now, if you consider the context of Zechariah 9 9, or at least the, just the intermediate context, we we'll have time to develop the whole context of, of Zechariah, you'll notice that we have back to back an interesting uh, thing. That verse 9 says of Zechariah 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Is that Isaiah 62? Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and dealt with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a coat, the foal of a donkey. So there's that reference in Matthew 21. But verse 10, I'll cut off a chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Back to back in that, we have a reference to Christ coming humble, on the foal of a donkey and then we have a reference to him in a more of a warrior type bringing peace and you know peace didn't just happen without conflict and dominion meaning he's king so you have both him as servant and as king in the same passage and so often we talk about in our Old Testament studies here uh, the analogy that where the prophets typically and you know sometimes at least uh, have in mind two different time periods in one context. And some of this is debatable because we, the, there's a debate about whether the prophet himself understood that or whether that was only God understanding that we're talking about a time gap. Okay? And so, but the, the analogy with, that we've used it sometimes is a telescopic, teles, telescoping or a prophetic foreshortening. The analogy is that of the mountain peaks. Okay? You think about here in Texas. We have the hills here, but you go out west. Let's say you're going to go to the Rocky Mountains. You're going to Colorado or wherever, you know, regions west. And you go out and you finally, you know, you get to the flatlands, you know. You sit down there and eventually you look out there and say, man, those are the Rocky Mountains. I see them up there. And you go, but because it's so far away, you know, Texas is a big state. And you're, so the other analogy is looking, the prophet's looking through his telescope here 
And he thinks that the, it's closer than it is or whatever. When you get to the first part of the foothills of the Rockies, you know, there at the edge of New Mexico, whatever, you go up to the next rise, and you say, oh, yeah, there I see the Rocky Mountains. You may even be deceived a little bit because you get more and more, you get higher and higher elevation. But there are plateaus, there are gaps, there are valleys between the mountains. But in the distance, and time-wise, in the distance, as you look through the prophetic telescope, there is a lack of understanding of that gap. Like between, like Isaiah, we'll, we'll talk about Isaiah 40, he quotes, which is quoted by John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Isaiah 40. Isaiah 42 through 49, about the suffering servant song. Some of those apply to Israel, but most of those apply to Jesus, especially Isaiah 52 and 53. Suffering servant there. It sounds like quotation of crucifixion. Then, so that's the first coming of Christ. And we already read Isaiah 61, which in the same, almost same breath, you get the first coming of Christ, bring release to the captives, and redemption, and you get the, uh, the day of vengeance of our God. That's the second coming. And you keep going on and on, and you'll see Isaiah uh, twice talks about and the new heavens and a new earth. And all that's in in the big mountain peaks of Isaiah. But in the distance, it's hard for, to him to see that. But we see it in hindsight. Okay, so um, now, let's, so we talked about um, Matthew's quotations here, and I think I've uh, shared with you some of those others briefly. All right, let's move on here. Overall, the Gospel of Matthew has approximately 48 quotations, uh, 18 or 19 with introductory formulas. Alright, so the Gospel according to Matthew also talks about a lot about fulfillment. Also says that Jesus came to fulfill righteousness. You know, John the Baptist said, you don't, you don't need to be baptized. I don't need to be baptized. He said, no. Let it be to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I did not come to do away with, but to fulfill the law in the prophets. So he came to fulfill in the book, in the book of uh, Matthew. It's about Jesus in, in the genealogy in chapter 1. It goes back to Abraham. It's about Israel, but it also goes to, to King David in verse 6. So Matthew is about him as king. Alright, so we have uh, a big influence of the Gospel of Matthew. Another high density of Old Testament quotations is in Hebrews chapter 1 with at least seven quotations and at least one allusion. Almost back-to-back -back quotations. Uh, book of Hebrews as a whole. Approximately 37 to perhaps 40 quotations and about 40 allusions as well as 19 cases where the Old Testament material summarized. 13 where an Old Testament name or topic is referred to without a specific context. Heightening the impact of that Heightening the Old Testament impact in the book of Hebrews in some very long quotations, especially Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant passage. Long quotation in chapter 8. Another fairly long quotation in chapter 10. Chapter 10 not only has that long quotation, he also quotes Psalm 40. has a long quotation about Psalm 40. Behold, I've come. It's written to me, help me in the volume of the book. And so we have a lot of saturation in the book of Hebrews of the Old Testament background. Okay, so let's move along now and talk about echoes. Echoes. Okay. As distinct from allusions. Uh, this may be classified as more indirect or subtle references to the Old Testament. They're not as clear. A reference is an allusion. Or an allusion is possibly dependent on the Old Testament text in, in, uh, in distinction to one that 
clearly is or may or probably be. So a so-called echo may even consist of a single thematic word. And if I have time in a minute, I'll quickly talk to you about uh, Matthew chapter 2, the, the uh, passage there and how that, that will illustrate this. Okay, so the echoes are obviously much more subjective. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, um, I ran across an interesting uh, food for thought on that. Um, George Guthrie, who wrote the passage on Hebrews in the um, commentary on the use of the Old Testament and Manu by Bill and, uh, Carson and Bill, he, he did the part on Matthew, excuse me, on Hebrews. He mentions an article by Matthewson who, you, who says that Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 has some allusions or, or what we might call echoes. He argues that those enlightened echoes the pillar of fire by which the Israelites were enlightened on their way. Psalm 105. The heavenly gift they had tasted echoes those who refer to the heavenly gift of manna. And in several places, in the, especially in the Septuagint and Old Testament, it says that the heavenly bread was given to them. Uh, and for Matthewson, those who have fallen away have become companions of the Holy Spirit. It echoes the experience of the wilderness wanderers who had extensive interaction with the Spirit of God. Um, for example, Isaiah 63.11 does mention that. There's other verses as well. 63.11 says, Then his people remember the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? So anyway, that's an interesting thought. He's saying that there's, there's, he doesn't just make snippets of text here, but he brings it all together, a large matrix of ideas to invoke the entire context, the story of Israel's wilderness, and that a grievous abandonment that they did was similar to what the Christian community was doing in the days of the writer of the book of Hebrews. It's just that's food of thought. So it's a subjective thing, but it's an interesting type of study. Okay, so we're talking about echoes. Other examples of echoes, like I said, well, go twice in, in Isaiah. I'm excuse me, twice in Matthew 21. He says, you know, have you not read? And there's three other times that Jesus in the New Testament says, have you not read? And he'll make an allusion to the Old Testament, assuming that they have, were familiar with that. Okay, uh, other echo, echoes might be. Uh, like a theme. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus in the book Gospel of Matthew is sometimes described as like a new Moses. You know, Moses went on Mount Sinai, gave the law. Jesus came on Mount on a mountain and gave teachings and uh, talks about, you know, the law said this, but I say that. He's a new Moses or a better Moses or an ideal Moses, new Israel, all that type of thing. That's the kind of a theme. Other issues that we could talk about if we had more time would be uh, the nature of Old Testament prophecy. Is it a direct prediction or only a type or dual type or is it a dual reference or through its combination? Especially significant or debatable is Isaiah 7 14 where we have, you know, the whole virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel because God is with us. Okay? So there's uh, two main views among the evangelicals and one is that that's a direct fulfillment of Christ. And that sounds good, and I don't have a problem with that. But if you look at the context, he's also talking to Ahab. Ahab says, I don't want a sign. I'll give you a sign anyway. Now, I'll speak to you now. It's true that the word there is plural. So he's speaking not only to Ahab, but he's speaking to all the house of Israel. But uh, I think that you'll see in the context in chapter 7, 15, and 16, they'll say before the baby will be old enough to eat curds and so forth. 
and, and, and that you'll be delivered from these two kings. These two kings were in that context. So historically context, it makes a lot more sense to say there's a it's a typology, it's an indirect passage. Or you could say dual fulfillment, but I'm more comfortable with it's a pattern. That in, what you see here today is a down payment of God's uh, judgment and redemption, and that is uh, the greater picture of Christ who is Emmanuel. The New Testament uses Parthenos, which is the specific word virgin. Old Testament uses Alma, which is debated whether sometimes virgin, sometimes young, uh, young uh, excuse me, young woman. Alright, so I think it's, that's an example of uh, typology, which is a typological pattern. Another issue is about census plenier. That's a technical term. Whether there's a fuller second sense uh, as in early Judaism, using the hermeneutics of the early Ju Judaism, or whether this just taking it out of context. So that, briefly, I'm going to speak to you about uh, the, the uh, possible allusion or uh, allusion or echo of the scepter and star prophecy spoken by the pagan prophet, the mercenary prophet Balaam. Numbers 22 to 25 is the story of, of Balaam, the Balaam oracles, and uh, the background there. The New Testament context of um, Matthew 2, you're probably familiar with that since it's, you know, it's not long since we've had that Christmas season. Remember Micah 5.2 when the Magi came and they were inquiring and they said, where's this, we've seen the star and, and where's you going to be born? And the scribes and, and so forth said, uh, the scribes and priests said that uh, born in Bethlehem, as Micah the prophet said, that's in verses 5 to 6. So Micah 5.2, that's a direct fulfillment there. But the more obscure possibility of Numbers chapter 24 where it mentions both a star and a scepter is, uh, is not as well known. So perhaps the Magi, uh, due to the influence of Jewish people in the East, they had some uh, way to know that. You know, there, it could be they were astrologers and so they saw the star and also they were, they were saying, what's about this? And some Jewish people that were in dispersion said, well, hey man, I don't know, but there's a Balaam may have something like this. Anyway, there's somewhat speculative speculation here, but so may may have alerted them. And then the Old Testament context is Moabite king Balak had hired Balaam as a mercenary prophet to curse Israel, but God overruled him. You know, we're more familiar with the talking donkey. A talking donkey is the least of our concerns here. Okay, <laughs> although God used a talking donkey, He did. Okay, and unfortunately. Uh, some people act like that talking donkey today. I don't know if God used them or not, but anyway, I'm getting a sidetrack, sorry. So, uh, but Balaam may have been a prototype of the Magi, and this is pointed out by R.T. France in his commentary. Uh, he was from the region of Mesopotamia, and so was both of them were. Uh, Balaam was a wise man by secular standards. He was pressured to oppose and destroy God's people. Like the Magi, though, he ultimately refused. And he saw the messianic star rise in Numbers 24, 15 through 18. He saw the rise of the messianic star. He was a non-Israelite holy man, a visionary from the east. Uh, he lived in a similar area. And he even came from the east. And Septuagint, that phrase is almost like Matthew 2, 1. In fact, Balaam seems to have learned his lesson mentally. 24, 9. You know, long story short is he was hired, paid good money by Balak. And he went out, and every time he started to curse him, you know, God had warned him, because the donkey, he had that fresh idea. And so, uh, every time he started to do that, he blessed him. And he came back, and Balak said, hey, come over here, man. I don't know if you understand my language. You know, I thought money talked in any language. 
I don't know, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm spending good money. You go out and curse them. He goes out and he blesses them every time. Okay, long story short on that was, it says in uh, Numbers 24-2 that uh, the Spirit of God was upon him. Okay, I believe that's the, the, I believe that's the verse there. Uh, yeah, uh, Numbers 24 says that the Spirit of God was upon him. And so actually the Lord was using this pagan unbeliever here in order to bring his message. Uh, 24.2 says he was controlled by the Holy Spirit. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, uh, and so he used him to speak of a messianic prophecy of a star and scepter. He even compared Israel to a lion, 24.9. And in Jeremiah, excuse me, in Genesis 49, 9, and 10, they talk about the lion of a tribe of Judah. They talk about verse 10, the scepter that is not depart from Shiloh, which is it translated Shiloh, or to who, to him who it belongs, which is like a better translation. It's a messianic prophecy. So it's a reference here, not only perhaps I think a, an echo of Numbers, but it's also an echo of Genesis 49. And so, what's the, the big picture? Is he began to learn. About Genesis 12, he didn't know directly, but indirectly, he learned the message of Genesis 12, which is the Abrahamic covenant that the Lord would bless those that bless uh, God's people and those who curse Him. So he to bless those who blessed Israel and to curse those who cursed Him. So led by the Holy Spirit, God used Him. And since this Old Testament prophecy may have had, may have, okay, often an Old Testament prophecy may have a partial fulfillment and then a deeper fulfillment later on. So it's interesting in the time of David. David defeated all his enemies. You know that time before Bathsheba, back in 2 Samuel 8, he defeated every enemy, every um, enemy, and that included the Moabites and Ammonites and all the others. Well, Moab, Balak was the king of Moab, and it also it says in this prophecy that Moab will feel the impact of this as well, and they're being judged. And King David, as we know, is a type of Christ. Not until the second coming of Christ will all visuals be enemies be destroyed. You know, we know Revelation 22, 16, what? He's a bright and morning star. His face shines like the sun. Transfiguration, Matthew 17, another parallel passage, right? <clears throat> so, that didn't say anything about a star. Wait a minute. Now, what's a sun? It's a star. We don't think about it, but yeah, the sun's a star. Okay, his face shines like the sun. So, back if you're preaching on this in the Christmas season, he's the star of the Christmas program. Right? He's the star. Okay, so he's the reason for the season. Okay, that's a little bit about the Christmas season. All right. Now, I don't have time to go on much more here. The last part of the handouts shares with you a preliminary method about study of the Old Testament and the New. And so, you can see this is pretty complex if you think about it because not only are we dealing with traditional Bible study methods, exegesis, study of Scripture, but you're simultaneously looking at a New Testament passage and an Old Testament passage and you're even trying to decide if this was quotation, if this was allusion or echo or whatever it may be. And uh, so I, this is a modification of uh, G.K. Beale's book on handbook on the Old Testament, on the New Testament use of the Old. I've uh, changed up the order of number one, two, and three. Number one, what's the Old Testament context of a citation or allusion? Number two, how's the Old Testament quotation or source handled in the literature of Second Temple Judaism? or more broadly, of early Judaism. Thirdly, the New Testament context of the citation or allusion. You know, the immediate context, the larger context, and all that. Uh, Bill starts with the, the New Testament context, then the Old Testament context, and then um, the number two that I have. So I've, I've 
change that a little bit. Number four, what textual factors must be borne in mind? <clears throat> now, let me encourage you a little bit. This is a, one reason to study Greek and Hebrew, so you can understand that better. But you don't have to be a Hebraist. You don't have to be a Greek. What do you say? You don't have to be Jimmy the Greek. You don't have to be somebody who knows Greek just like the back of your hand in order to use good commentaries in order to understand. And Bratcher's book is helping you to see English versions and stuff. But anyway, you've got to address the text. And hopefully you will study Greek and Hebrew because that will enable you to analyze better. Okay, for, fifthly, how is the New Testament using or appealing to the Old Testament? What's the nature of the connection? Is it a merely a connection like we said a while ago that they're so steeped with language that their minds automatically just flow biblical references out? Or is there some other reason? Okay, number six. To what theological use is the New Testament writer put the Old Testament quotation allusion? There's from anywhere from 10 to 12 to 15 different ways that are suggested that the Old Testament uses the New. You can find that in Roy Zook's book on hermeneutics. You can find that in um, Beale's book. All right, and number seven. Analyze the author's rhetorical use of the Old Testament. In plain English, that says pastoral application. Okay? What's the author's purpose in referring to the Old Testament intended force? How is he trying to change them theologically or ethically? All right, thank you for listening today.